1932, Salvador Rolden walked into the county clerk's office in Los Angeles and asked for a marriage license. He and his fiancée, Marjorie Rogers, wanted to get married, but there was a problem. They went to the registrar and they were denied a license. That's scholar Rachel Moran. There had been an opinion by the state attorney general saying that the anti-miscegenation law barred Filipinos from marrying whites because they were Mongolian. Rolden was a Filipino man and Rogers a white woman. So, according to California's anti-miscegenation law, that meant they couldn't marry. Anti-miscegenation laws were statutes that prohibited marriage across racial lines. And so, for example, 38 states at various times had anti-miscegenation laws. So they were not just in the South. They also weren't just for blacks and whites. Many people think only black-white relationships were regulated, but 14 states regulated intermarriage with Asians and seven states intermarriage with Native Americans. There's a 300-year history, give or take, of anti-miscegenation laws in the United States. Moran says state governments regulated interracial marriage for many reasons. Of course, the overarching reason was to control the color line, but the details of each statute varied according to a state's geography and racial makeup. So when you look at the South, you see black slaves working alongside white indentured servants. And there's a deep concern that if there are relationships, it's going to muddy the line between black and white and slave and free. And in the West, where later you saw regulation with Asians, there was again this concern that Asians might intermarry, become attached to the United States, want to remain in the United States rather than just being temporary laborers. And so anti-miscegenation laws became a way to keep a low-wage labor force intact, isolated, treated as unassimilable and ineligible for citizenship. But for Filipinos like Rolden, living in California in the 1930s was a bit different. Well, what's so interesting about the Filipino experience in California was an overwhelmingly male migration to do work. But they were considered American nationals because the Philippines had become an American territory. They had been taught in American flag schools. So they were steeped in the belief in American democracy the rights of the individual, and the freedom and equality that would define us as an authentic democracy. So when they arrived, for example, in Los Angeles, they felt free to go to dance halls to socialize with white women, Mexican women, and basically have relationships. And they didn't think this was any problem. So when there was pushback, for example, there were riots. The Filipino community mobilized in a way that other communities did not. They hired lawyers to litigate the denial of marriage licenses. And when they defended themselves, they said, we were taught that we were American. And therefore, we have the same rights as any other American. So when the registrar denied Rolden and Rogers, the couple decided to do something about it. They didn't give up. They didn't say, oh, well, then we won't get married. Instead, they decided to fight it, and they benefited from the mobilization of the Filipino community around this effort. And with the help of the Filipino community, Rolden and Rogers took the case to court. But their lawyer didn't actually challenge the constitutionality 
of California's anti-miscegenation law. Now, according to California's law, Mongolians couldn't marry whites. At the time, there's an anthropological account of race, and I think the categories are treated as monolithic. And so the idea that these categories are separate and distinct and therefore have to be all enumerated in order to be covered is one of the reasons the Filipino community is actually able to challenge the law because the attorney general basically says, common sense tells me that the legislature intended when it used the classification Mongolian to include Filipinos. But the lawyer said according to these scientific racial categories that influence the anti-miscegenation law in the first place, Filipinos weren't actually Mongolian. They're Malay. And so they use that scientific authority to undercut the attorney general's sense that, of course, the legislature wanted to include Filipinos. So what they're basically saying is it's not an exception. The legislature didn't cover us. So we're not prohibited unless the legislature explicitly says so using the scientific racial category that applies to us, which is Malay. You can't say that all Asians are Mongolian, right? You have to use our category because the legislature chose to use Mongolian, and that doesn't include Filipinos. We're not within that racial category. And in a sense, they're saying if you really want to exclude us from marrying, you need to say it explicitly on the face of the statute. Rolden and Rogers won their case and obtained a marriage license. The ruling was upheld, and Filipinos were legally classified as Malays. But three days after the California Supreme Court refused to hear the appeal, the state legislature struck back. Within three days of the decisions upholding this interpretation, the state legislature amends the statute and includes Malays as one of the categories. It happened very quickly. Today we think that you know, legislatures can't get anything done, they're in gridlock, they're paralyzed, but at that time they could move pretty quickly, and they did. Now, even though Rolden and Rogers were married, their union was seen as illegal in the eyes of the law. But the story doesn't quite stop there. Yes, it's very interesting because the Filipino community doesn't say, all right, we lost before the California legislature, we're done. No. One thing they did was continue to marry particularly Mexican women who had a similar appearance in terms of their color. And so registrars didn't challenge these marriages because the Mexican women were not seen as authentically white and therefore they were permissible, even though as a formal matter, by law, they were white. The other thing that Filipino men did was to go with their white brides to another state like Utah, for example. And they would marry there, where there were no restrictions. And when they came back, California gave full faith and credit to those marriages. And so they said, well, you know, we have a legitimate marriage license, and therefore, and you honor those marriage licenses, so we're married in the eyes of the law. So, so this is a case from 1933, and it isn't until Loving v. Virginia, 1967, that anti-miscegenation laws around the country are ultimately struck down. But what's happening in this three-decade period between the case in California and what becomes the Loving decision? Well, you know, what's very interesting is that California's Supreme Court became the first state high court since Reconstruction to strike down anti-miscegenation laws 
as unconstitutional, but no other court followed suit. Some legislatures started to get rid of these laws on their own, annulling them, but the laws remained intact, particularly in the South, until 1967. And there were a couple of challenges before then, but the court didn't want to engage. For example, there's a case involving a Chinese seaman in the 1950s, and he says, I shouldn't be subject to anti-miscegenation laws that will invalidate my ability to naturalize by marrying uh, an American citizen. And the court says it's 1950s, and we just decided Brown versus the Board of Education. And we're facing all kinds of resistance, and Brown must stand, and we don't want anything to disrupt the integration of schools under Brown versus the Board. And so they basically don't take the case. They decide it's too difficult at that moment politically. In the words of one of the justices, one bombshell at a time is enough. Now, in the case of Brown versus the Board of Education, you have the movement toward massive resistance that emerges in response that tries to fight back against desegregation measures. And then there are multiple decades of pushback with people joining private clubs, opting out of certain public schools. In the Loving case, I'm curious, is, is there any kind of social or political reverberation that comes in the wake of this landmark ruling? And is there a way to track what kinds of changes the Loving decision really helped to make permanent in American society? Well, I think the first thing that really strikes people about Loving is that when the first couple, interracial couple, went to marry in Virginia, they did so without incident. It was very peaceful. There mm. really was no massive resistance of the type that you're describing after Brown. And you might ask yourself, why is that? And I think part of it is that there was no feeling that people were being forced to integrate. Marriage remained a free choice. Mm. And so it was almost a laissez-faire approach. We won't interfere, but we won't make you get married across racial lines. And so probably if you saw any kind of reaction, it happened more informally after you were married, you were trying to find a place to live where you could be accepted, or you were walking down the street and people thought you were very unusual. So there were undoubtedly social pressures that both deterred people from intermarrying and affected the experience of intermarriage, but it wasn't happening because of formal restrictions and behavior by the registrars anymore. So you might have asked you a personal question? Sure. So I'm actually part of a, a family that could be described as interracial, going way back to the 19th century, in fact. Um, the historian Martha Hodes actually writes about one of my forebears and an interracial relationship between the Caribbean and um, New England. And I gather that um, you similarly have that background of a kind of mix of these groups that are considered to be partly of different racial groups. It, it, it certainly impacted my research in ways that I didn't always expect. And I'm curious if you had any relationship between your own biography and the research questions that drove what you then turned to study in this case. That is right. I, uh, my father was Irish. My mother is of Mexican origin. And they married um, in the early 1950s at a time when I think the relationship bordered on anti-miscegenation. And when they mm. were getting ready to marry, the minister said, what about the children? Because the assumption was we wouldn't really fit in anywhere. And I think throughout my life, because of my parents' marriage, I did see 
issues of race and ethnicity playing out very differently than I might have if I'd been in a sort of household that was a conventional household where people had married within their own race and ethnicity. My mother also had grown up in Mexico, and so I had a sort of transnational quality as mm -hmm. well. And writing the book, I think, became a vehicle for figuring out the deeper meaning of things that I had seen. And I think I went from the narratives to trying to get a deeper meaning, a kind of way of understanding the world through broadening my awareness that, you know, other groups had been affected, there had been an entire history. It wasn't just about my family and growing up in my families. Rachel Moran is a law professor and dean emerita at the UCLA School of Law. She's also the author of the book, Interracial Intimacy, The Regulation of Race and Romance. <laughs> 